Good afternoon. Welcome to Point of View Uncensored. I am Dr. Renaissance, the host, and I'll let my co-hosts announce themselves. Sure. I'm Dr. Jake. I'm a professor at the University of West Georgia. I teach classes focusing on critical theory, uh, psychoanalysis, um, understanding the connection between the mind and body, um, and other topics relevant to psychology. What's going on, everybody? It's DJ, or DJ the Great. Um, thanks for having me back, and uh, looking forward to talking with you guys. So this episode, we have two uh, guests with us. Um, we have one by the young man named Jamil Muhammad, and we also have a um, candidate for Atlanta City Council on the phone. His name is Mr. Jason Dozier. I'll let those two explain um, themselves and give their introductions. Thanks for having me. My name is Jamil Muhammad. I am a middle school educator and I am the host of the Krishna Fist podcast where we talk about mental health, physical health and environmental health to try to enhance the human body, mind and spirit in every way that we can. I'm Jason Dozier. Uh, as was said, I'm a candidate for Atlanta City Council in District 4, which is Southwest Atlanta. Uh, some of our most historic communities, including West End, Oakland City, uh, the Atlanta University Center, uh, and my home community of Mechanicsville. And I've been a community organizer in my home community of Mechanicsville for the last six years, uh, fighting uh, for issues around housing justice and uh, uh, displacement and transportation equity. And uh, I'm a native of Atlanta, born and raised here, uh, left, left my hometown to go into the military, uh, served in both Iraq and Afghanistan, came home 10 years ago, and I really got to work, uh, working in our disadvantaged communities, and I'm currently running for city council. Thanks for having me. Good. I'm glad you all um, came today. So without further ado, we'll get started. So before we go into our topics, um, I just want to let you know we will be discussing, the topic of this episode will be toxic masculinity. But before we get started, we're going to start talking, we're going to discuss some hot topics um, for what's been going on right now. So the first thing I want to discuss is the Department of Justice suing the state of Georgia over their voter suppression law, which is uh, House Bill 202. So I wanted to get you, you guys take on that um, on that, now the, now the story is that that they violated Section Two of that of the Voting Rights Act of 1965, which we all know that was brought into um, legislation through Martin Luther King Jr. and um, President uh, Johnson at the time. So, what do y'all think about these things that are going on? Them violating laws that we put in place during the Civil Rights Movement, and then now, 50 years later, we're still you know battling cases based off that law that was put in place. Um, I'll let let you go first. Yeah, sure. I think from a um, you know a perspective that looks at the way that power functions and in institutions and throughout history, this is a covert form of racism uh, and segregation, discrimination that um, you know we it had to go underground. Um, we can't. Uh, we can, but most people aren't proudly displaying their racism like they used to. Um, so it becomes more insidious. And uh, what I mean by that is that it uh, permeates our institutions. It goes covert. And so um, we get these bills, these laws that go by names like the uh, you know, Voting Rights Act, um, where in actuality they're taking away rights from disenfranchised communities. And they're stripping specifically African-Americans um, the chance to vote um, in a free and fair election in the same sense that uh, white Americans um, are able to do that. Um, so for me, it is um, 
a blatant attack on kind of the democratic ideals that the country is founded on, this notion of fair elections, the notion of being able to access the voting booth uh, without challenge, without hurdle. And we know historically African-Americans have faced uh, extreme challenges when trying to cast a vote. Um, and so this is kind of that same uh, residual um, form of racism that's returning to us in the present day. Thank you. Um, when I think of the bill that's just been passed, um, immediately always look to solutions. Um, if history has just, just went in a complete circle, what can we learn from this experience? Meaning if certain hurdles are in place that would prevent black people from their right to vote, what can we do to move around those hurdles? Um, I feel like the reaction that a lot of people are giving off is if this is an impossible task for us to overcome. Uh, I feel like most of us are playing into stereotypes that we have outgrown at this point, meaning um, can we not be on time proactive and thinking in advance if the system proves to once again be not in our favor. So if the question is about um, showing up to polls on time or absentee, uh, absentee ballots and mail-in ballots um, facing certain levels of discrimination, what can we do and how proactive can we be going forward to overcome these things. And I think that we've shown that we're pretty resilient. And if the government chooses to continue to go down the path that is going, that we will overcome it as our ancestors have done in the past. So Jamil, what do you, what do you think about um, all this is going on with the uh, federal government suing the state of Georgia and even across other, other states where they're pushing voting suppression bills um, to pretty much limit African-Americans, the right to vote also, uh, make it illegal for um, outside organizations to serve water and food to people that's waiting in long lines to vote. Um, with all those tactics, like, what do you think what's going on? What do you think we should do to to remedy that situation? The first, the first thought that I had in my mind was really um, in relation to this book right behind me called The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander. And she talks about how these different systems of racism and discrimination continue to basically show up throughout history, but with a different face. So as mentioned before, um, it's pretty um, covert rather than being so direct and overt in your face. So they would do things um, to kind of like sidestep and really um, work to work against certain groups, which calls for uh, discrimination. And um, one of the things that I find really, really interesting is when we hear these sort of stories, like an entire state of Georgia being sued for discrimination, for violating section two, um, one of the, the, the thoughts or the statements that I hear these days is it's 2021. Well, last year it was 2020. So why is this being, and the thing is it's still relevant and it's still alive and in your face. So us saying, oh, it's 2021, that's a way of us kind of ignoring the fact that these systems and mindsets are still present in our society today. And 
the first thing we should do is one, have a conversation like we're doing is, and two, educate ourselves on what that looks like as it's being shown up over time, over and over in history. I recommend everybody read The New Jim Crow. Thank you for that. Thank you for that. And Mr. Dozier, um, I, I know you, I know um, what your experience, I know you, you, you're a veteran from my understanding. So I know you might have a lot of understanding when it comes to um, the federal government. So if you, can, if you can pretty much break all this down, like why are these things happening and what can we do to try to remedy the situation? Well, I don't know if, uh, if uh, my experience qualifies me as an expert, but I will say that, you know, when that bill was signed, uh, it, it was not lost on me that it was signed underneath the painting of a slave plantation uh, behind closed doors. That was the same day that uh, Representative Park Cannon got arrested uh, for knocking on the door to try to make sure that she had an opportunity to bear witness to the rights of so many Black Georgians being taken away. And so, uh, you know, the, it's, it's not ironic, it's by design, in my opinion. I think the fact that uh, we don't talk about the fact that uh, the Georgia State Capitol is adorned with the uh, the visages, the paintings, the statues of dead Confederates, the fact that the Georgia State flag is still the Confederate flag. It might not be the Southern Cross, which we all think of the, the Confederate battle flag, it's the stars and bars that still flies over the Georgia State Capitol. And so the, the symbology of this uh, is not lost on me and I hope it's not lost on anyone else. And uh, as far as what we do to address this, I think uh, folks still need to stay active, stay engaged uh, during the worst of it all, uh, whether uh, we're talking about post-Reconstruction, whether we're talking about uh, the 1940s, 1950s, uh, during the first Jim Crow, uh, we were organized. We did everything in our power to vote. We did everything in our power to make sure people knew what their rights were. And we did everything in our power to gather political power as much as possible, as best as possible. And, and that meant fighting uh, for our rights through the courts, fighting for our rights through uh, making sure that we got uh, folks that look like us in elected office and fighting to make sure that our voices were heard every every step of the way. And so I don't think that needs that, that shouldn't be lost on folks either. Uh, that even in times when uh, you know things were were uh, measurably worse in many cases for our people, and work still continued. And so that's what keeps me motivated is that this is a step back, but that doesn't mean it's going to be the end all be all of uh, what happens with this fight. Uh, with that being said, uh, as far as solutions. Uh, I think folks just need to continue to stay engaged. Uh, the fact that, you know, we're talking about one state out of 50, uh, the fact that we're talking about one position of power, specifically our governor, uh, considering that there are hundreds of municipalities in the state of Georgia, we have, we have 159 counties, we have judgeships, we have uh, state elections next year. Folks continue, need to continue to get involved and engage. Uh, I'm running for municipal office, but I'm one of at least uh, 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 20 um, offices that's on the ballot here in Atlanta uh, this, this election cycle. So uh, there's the opportunities for change abound and uh, either uh, folks should continue to stay engaged in the process and either uh, help a candidate get elected or run for office themselves. And it's, you know, not the, the, the power that is vested in our state legislature is not, uh, is not, they're not omnipotent. And so uh, continually staying involved and engaged is the best way to try to address this issue in a meaningful way. And there's organizers already on the ground doing this work. I mean, I think about New Georgia Project and Fair Fight Action, uh, folks who have been fighting the, the good fight on this issue for some time and making sure those organizations are empowered 
uh, folks who might not be interested in electoral politics and still stay involved through the critical organizing work necessary to be to, to make sure our rights are not infringed and that we can continue to be successful in our ability to go to the polls. Thank you. Anybody want to? Yeah, I just, um, I think, Jason, your comment about uh, the symbology regarding the signing of the bill, I think, is really pertinent. Uh, the fact that it was signed behind closed doors without an audience in front of a picture or a painting of a plantation, I think, uh, you know, speaks to the remnants of white supremacy that, is, as you mentioned, are found scattered throughout the state of Georgia. Um, and I think that uh, as a way to address these kinds of symbols, of course, you know, Jason coming from a community uh, political or um, organizing standpoint, um, you know, advocates for staying involved, uh, creating change, which of course is extremely important. But I think also we need to think more broadly in terms of the national conversation. How can we get people in rural Midwest and, uh, you know, rural places that um, might not have minorities at all, might be predominantly or 100% white, how can we get them engaged in the conversation, engaged in the process, um, as opposed to, uh, you know, acting like it's not their problem, like it doesn't affect them? Um, so, you know, I think, of course, you know, local, local change um, on the state level, on the community level, um, of course, is really important. But I think to really affect lasting long-term change, we need to think um, broadly and shift the national discourse um, to making this not a, a, a problem that black people need to deal with, but really, fundamentally, I think it's a white person problem. The fact that racism, white supremacy still perpetuates, still continues to exist in the United States, white people need to step up and to try and tackle this um, and not just pay it lip service, but enact the practical, material means by which we can um, slay this beast. Uh, so that's that's kind of my uh, uh, sense of where I think we need to change the conversation. Uh, I I appreciate that perspective, but in my point of view, I I think it has to be looked at from the opposite token. Um, I think it's hard for other people to rally behind you when you don't completely rally behind yourself. Um, when I hear Jim Crow, my dad's about 77 years old. So when I think Jim Crow, I think of the stories that he tells me from his childhood. And I think in comparison, it's hard to, to parallel those two things. Um, like being able to go wherever you please still. Um, the fear of being chased by mobs or crosses burning in front of your houses and things like that. We've come quite a bit so me tying this with the new Jim Crow with all of the access that we have is a is a bit hard based off of stories that I've heard I feel like the more serious black people take life as a whole and the more we show better representation through community because we still don't have community we have more so like segments of neighborhoods and the minute we form 
community, show a serious representation of ourselves throughout, through educating each other and not just focusing so much on the past, but also pushing towards the future and solution, other people can look and want to stand behind the example that we're pushing forward. So the the boogeyman or the elephant in the room that we use as a scapegoat isn't moving us down the field. So self first, self love, community, unity, examples. And then when I see the progress from the outside looking in, speaking from speaking of other cultures, I'll be more willing to stand behind and push rather than us waiting for a savior who doesn't necessarily have the incentive to do so. So what does it benefit someone in middle America that has no benefit to do these things? What I have as an example is what I turn on the TV. What, you know, I see in movies, the imagery that's put in front of me, which makes me hands off anyway. So I think that the image that we choose to put forward will incentivize others to stand behind us versus us just sitting and waiting for somebody who has no interest or benefit in our community to do it for us. Um, Jamila, Jason, if y'all wanted to have a rebuttal before I go on to the next topic, you're more than welcome to um, to do so. Last thing I wanted to say is... um definitely I want to uh, on, on DJ's point um, you need to one you have to deal with self first and us as a community um, we have to be those that that have basically commanded respect to to have um, the things that we want in our community so um, the form of unity that has to be real unity and sustained unity not just um, something that's, that's temporary or you know for a few weeks or a few months. That has to be um, kind of immortalizing in our community. We have to continually um, unite on, on, on common points that would allow us to have um, rights and justice in the way that, that we see fit. And um, it definitely, it starts with yourself. It starts with your, your, your family, your household, and how are you interacting with the people in your community as well. So. Um, you definitely need the, the people to do the groundwork. You have to be in the schools. You have to be in the community doing work in the, the religious institutions or even in spiritual institutions, wherever it may be. Uh, those institutions should grow the minds of the people in the community. And um, my hope is that we come together on a common positive point because it is absolutely necessary. Thank you. Agreed. Something that comes to mind is a quote that I heard. You build uh, better people who build better families, who build better communities, who help us build a better nation. So those are like the stepping stones that lead us towards a higher situation than what we are. Okay. Well, let me go on to the next topic. We can segue into our next topic, um, which part of building a community is pretty much having equity, um, having assets. I know one of the things that um, the Biden administration did put forth in in their COVID relief package was um, $5 billion um, to be given to the black farmers. Um, 
due to, you know, years of discrimination against the U.S. Uh, Department of Agriculture, where um, a lot of black farmers were losing their land, and now they're using it, this package, as a remedy to, you know, for black farmers to get their land back. Um, but now the issue is now it's being blocked by a judge in Florida um, due to a group of white farmers stating that the bill is discriminatory against the white farmers because they won't have access to to that money. So now it's currently being held where we, we can't get access to that money until further notice. So when we build our community, you know, the first thing is is to get land or to get farm because, again, we can't even – we can't um, – grow our fruit and grow our, grow our produce. So with this going on, how, how I'm not saying it's impossible for us to, to still build, but we get all, we get all these roadblocks such as, you know, block of bills or any money that's received from the government that we put taxpayers in. Um, how, wh- wouldn't that frustrate a black community? Cause it's, you know, we try to, we try to get a step ahead, but then we're getting blocked on the other side. So Jack, you want to speak about that in particular? Yeah. Uh, it's uh, kind of um, fortuitous that Paul's bringing this up right now because I'm currently doing research um, a little bit into um, settler colonialism or post-colonial theory. And so one of the things that post-colonial studies has taught us is that the first move, imperialist move you make is to deny the indigenous people their land. Um, and that's the first step towards colonization, one of the first steps towards colonization. And so I think this law, while it's not um, historical in the sense of, you know, being invaded, colonized, and so on and so forth, it is nonetheless representative or symbolic of that gesture. Um, And um, so what I mean by that is that there is not this kind of mythical even playing field um, that white people and black people and other minorities start off on. And so um, part of the reason for the Biden administration, including this in the coronavirus bill, was to kind of offset that disadvantage. Um, and so I think that, you know, again, having a group of white people contest this, hold it up, hold these funds up, deny this funding for black farming, Land, land ownership, I think, is um, just another example of the way that this, these more implicit forms of racism, um, maybe not even racism, we could call it colonialism, uh, Eurocentric white colonialism, the way that it, that it shows itself now um, in, a, in a less overt, kind of less in-your-face fashion. Um, so I think, you know, my hope is that the judge order will get overturned um, and that it'll, you know, the funding will be allowed to go forward. But uh, nonetheless, the, the holdup uh, is still damaging, I think, to, to the black farmers in a lot of ways. Where are the protesters? That's my question. Where's the outrage? Um, again, I'm surprised that there's not a outpour um, from celebrities, from uh, all of the people who clout chase behind all things black. Um, Am I surprised that this is taking place in 2021? No, I'm not. Um, 
again, uh, history in circle again, but with us being different mentally, what I would expect to happen from this would be the pooling of resources to supplement those farmers who may be in dire need from the halves of our communities. So in a perfect world, in a perfect black Wakanda, you would have athletes and singers and rappers and the vice president and all of these other people and Black Lives Matter uh, rushing to the scene and everyone in their platforms making this a, an, an egregious act that will make, you know, the, the overall country stare at it and, and force these changes since this is um, discrimination. But until those things become normal, um, it'll just be a, another day and, and the 72 hour rule and a, a new story will come and maybe ruffle the whole racial tension in America scene. And then, we end up back where we were. So I'm not surprised at all. Jamil, what about yourself? You think are you surprised? I'm definitely not surprised. I I, I read a few things a few years ago. I need to recover the document, but um the Housing Association in America, especially in Illinois, has been known historically to be very discriminatory and um would deny loans to black people. Um, especially if they wanted to acquire large amounts of land or farmland. And to be honest, land as a as an asset, using it for agricultural reasons, would allow you to have a, a, a space in not only the biotech sector, you will have space in agriculture. And agriculture pretty much creates everything that we use, touch, and interact with in this society. So for for our for the American society to deny or to, to continue to, to be discriminatory in that way is absolutely not surprising to me, and I'm 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 not even gonna act like it's surprising because it's not. Um, I kind of is is messed up, but you kind of expect those sort of things because the same things that we're fighting for, um, we've gotten some progress, but we're still fighting for justice in those cases. So. You go and ask someone for a loan so that you can acquire land and, and accumulate wealth, have something to pass down to your children. Um, it's been historically made very difficult. And um, I'm absolutely not surprised by that. Thank you. Jason, what do you think? Just the only thing I have to add is, is when I was looking, I remember when that story first broke and I remember reading the statement by uh, the organization that fought the lawsuit, I think it's called America First Legal. Uh, and they had the audacity to, to say that they oppose discrimination in all forms. And they weaponized the words of Martin Luther King Jr. and said that uh, we hold fast to his words that uh, Americans should not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. And uh, in, this, in this lawsuit to prevent the government from rectifying uh, decades or generations of uh, of uh, injustice, and it, it's we saw the same thing uh, like these last couple of weeks with um, conservatives co-opting the words of Martin Luther King Jr. and they they do it all the time, and it's it's just just painfully frustrating knowing uh, the the radical 
uh, uh, leanings and the just the the very nuanced and uh, thoughtful positions that Dr. King took on issues around uh, rectifying the historical injustices impacting our communities, and it's, it's, it's unfortunately just another way that his message and that his uh, his legacy has been uh, uh, sanitized uh, and is being used to wep- in, in a weaponized way against people who have been victimized through in- historical injustice. And mm-hmm. that's, that's what breaks my heart about all this more than anything is that, uh, well, not more than anything, obviously these farmers, you know, having trouble making his meat, uh, but just the mm-hmm. fact that this uh, continues to happen is, is something that I think, um, you know, we need to do a better job in terms of you know educating people and, and make sure the discourse recognizes that Dr. King's history and his message is more than just a speech he gave in 1963. And so, so yeah, I just hate that it continues to be weaponized against the people who need help the most. Since we're talking about Martin Luther King, uh, I think we forget the, the tail end of the speech where he says, I fear I've led my people into a burning building. Are we right now in this very uh, building that he was talking about? So you were forewarned. I guess we still haven't decided to get out yet. Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, you know, to piggyback off both what um, Jason and DJ are kind of alluding to, I think the principle underlying this lawsuit is similar, if not the same, to affirmative action. Um, the workplace and um, insofar as that you know there's the there's not this uh, myth that America's built on where everybody's born into equal conditions and um, everybody has the same chance you know this this old adage that if you pull yourself up by your bootstraps if you put in enough work if you work hard enough anybody can be uh, the next uh, Bill Gates, the next Kanye West, the next Elon Musk, you know, the next Barack Obama. That's just blatantly not true. Um, and in fact, that that myth is damaging um, in a lot of ways. And not only that, it is fundamentally, I think, a racist kind of myth. Um, and so uh, having these, these um, uh, ethical... Um, uh, institutional um, uh, th- things in place to help help disadvantaged people, um, you know, rise rise in society. I think is the equitable thing to do. I think it's the ethical thing to do, and I think we'll be better off as a nation if we have um, more mechanisms like that in our social institutions. Right. Okay. We'll segue into our. Next topic, which is um, The View, uh, which is a talk show um, I'm sure everyone's familiar with. It's on ABC, has been uh, going on for about 25 years now. Um, it was announced that Megan McCain, um, daughter of Senator John McCain and Miss Cindy McCain, will be leaving the show at the end of July. Um, she said it was due to her family, family reasons and things of that nature. Um and the reason why I bring that show up, because I know it's a it's one of those, it's labeled as the top rating um, talk show of, of America. And a lot of people definitely have their um, disagreements with that statement as well. Um, but more importantly, um, I want to talk about Meghan McCain because of the fact that um, she is a conservative personality on that show. Um, where she, bur- she pretty much 
gave the views of the Republican Party um, in a very um, inflammatory way. Um, so some people do think it is a good, it's good that she is leaving the show. Um, it's possible she may be replaced by another person such as um, like her. Um, so I want to know what you guys think about her leaving the show and what do you guys think about the show, The View, um, it being, quote unquote, the number one talk show, political talk show in America, um, which many people beg to differ. Yeah, I think, um, you know, I did actually watch that episode uh, where, you know, Megan announced that she was departing from The View. And I there were several points that I agreed with and largely over and above uh, was the fact the way the sexist way that the media media covers that show. And so having all women sit on a panel discussion and the way that those stories get sensationalized, whether using metaphors like a cat fight, um, these old kind of tropes that um, are fundamentally sexist in nature. And so I think the show in a way exposes these the kinds of uh, language that shows up in the media. And I think it can, can, it doesn't necessarily have to help us self-reflect or change the ways that we, um, for example, view women in society um, that uh, sensationalize this kind of um, infighting. Um, but I, I think that uh, their perspective, I think, is important. I think it's important to have strong uh, women of color, like Whoopi Goldberg, Goldberg um, uh, Hispanic women on The View, uh, white women, these kind of diverse group of strong, successful women. I think something like that is really healing and helpful for society. Um, and so, you know, while Megan might differ from me politically, um, you know, it was nonetheless refreshing to see, you know, someone with a, a strong voice and a strong opinion and someone uh, willing that's a woman to take a risk and put herself out there uh, for all the world to see. I think they're going to replace her with Tommy Lauren. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that'll be a good person to replace her with. Yeah. Uh, I think this is just adding to the stir of keeping the show um, spicy. Um, whether it's for family reasons or not, uh, it was probably best to cycle something out to keep it a fresh look. Um, all of these shows are like a uh, a female pop group. I don't. Uh, that's like the formula on daytime TV: the View, the Talk, the Table, the Circle. So apparently, Mike uh, America loves this formula of uh, Auntie Grandma talk. Uh, they they have valid opinions sometimes, and it, it's more like a mixture of reality TV and news where there has to be, like, conflict and drama. So it's not really my cup of tea, but um, some of the stuff is very viral. <laughs> and I guess that they'll have to have another viral component come in there that'll push the... That'll push the... the um, the narrative of uh, mean white America that we we crave, which I think is just a, a smoke and mirror screen. So, Tommy Lauren, Omarosa, another dicey. Um, what would you stereotype that type of woman as? Like, if you could put a stamp on it, what would you 
say that that type of personality is, and I'm sure it's offensive. I but think, they'll find. Um, <laughs> I was just thinking one uh, Candace Owens will be a good replacement. Oh yeah, I forgot about her. <laughs> Put Candace Owens on there. Everybody will be mad. Will be really <laughs> mad. <laughs> They'll def- I think they'll definitely get more people to watch, that's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> I think she has some kind of podcast or something, so she may not do it, but who knows? We'll see. I like that. That'll be interesting. <laughs> what do you think, Jamil? Uh, based off of the descriptions I'm getting from uh, Miss McCain, I think that that sort of, I guess, uh, antagonist kind of personality or someone that, that's going to add a little friction to um, conversations. I think people initially they would say that they want to come and come to a common ground, but I think deep down we need and crave that that different perspective. Even if it's something that we highly disagree with, we want to hear, we want to engage in it. Um, not only because it challenges us, but it gives us kind of like insight into the mind of other people. So I think that if it's one of the most um, popular shows watched. And she's part of that that friction. That show might lose a little bit of value um, unless you add another person that can add that friction as well. So I mean, I think it's just the human aspect of it. We we want to find that which is like us, but also um, we want to engage in that which is not like us or something that we disagree with. Thank you. I, I agree with that. And I, I'll just add that uh, I just wish that the conservative views that they brought on the show were, um, how should I say, less less inflammatory. I feel like there's an opportunity to win people over to your side by actually having a discussion and having positive discourse and, uh, you know, just talking about the issues in, in, in a meaningful way. And what happens is uh, they bring these folks in their shows for the purpose of uh, you know, the, the expectation that these people will say inflammatory, inflammatory things, will generate ratings, will get headlines. And uh, to me, that worsens the discourse because you don't actually uh, talking, talk about these issues in a, in a meaningful or intellectual way. Uh, and, and it makes our, our uh, hyper-partisanship that we're experiencing today even worse. And so that, that's, that's really the, the unfortunate thing for me here is that I think there's space for shows like The View. I don't watch it. I know people who do, uh, but I think the the format has really done a disservice uh, to uh, you know people who uh, you know might not see eye to eye, and and it only worsens our political leanings and our partisanship. I think back when I was in the army, I had friends who were staunch conservatives who we were able to have honest discussions about why we saw the world the way we do, and. Uh, some of my closest friends today are folks who used to vote exclusively Republican, and they they now uh, refuse to vote for anything further to the right than Elizabeth Warren. So to see them on that journey, I think has only been possible because we were able to have those honest conversations. And you can't have an honest conversation when all you're doing is regurgitating uh, not only talking points, but inflammatory talking points that aren't steeped in reality. The fact that so many members of the Republican Party have given uh, so much uh, uh, airtime and so much credence to uh, the, the the idea that this the presidential election wasn't a fair election, and the fact that so many people have rallied around that and have taken that, and people are running for office based off of that lie. 
uh, it, it, there's something that's poison in the discourse. And, and unfortunately, uh, while the view is not the worst of the offenders, I think the way that they've managed to uh, put people who have different views uh, so opposed to each other and in that way, and just, just really exacerbates really the worst of it, uh, I think has added fuel to that fire. And I hope that uh, they, they look at this as an opportunity to, to recalibrate and to think about how they can actually have a good conversation that gets people to, to think differently maybe about the issues that they, they hold near and dear. I know that's not what they're gonna do. They're gonna wanna go for the ratings, but unfortunately uh, we all are not served or there's a disservice to all of us uh, because they all do that. And, and I think um, not comparing her to uh, Candace Owens, but one the one um, fortunate thing I do like about uh, Candace Owens is that she does come from bases of facts. She not she doesn't really appear to come off like she's stating opinions. A lot a lot of times she's stating statistics, even though you may not agree with her. Um, and it just seems like with Megan McCain, it's more so it's more so opinionated and it's more based. It's pretty much based off her life. You know, it's based off how how she grew up rich. Everything is based upon her realm of thinking, which I don't typically like to agree with, you know, because like I said, it's based off of your opinion. And that's where I lose a disconnect with her. Like it's one thing to have an opinion, but when you're just sitting there whining and then you you get on the show and you're comparing yourself to Michael Pence, you know, it's like that's those are not those are not intellectual conversations where you're comparing things that have no business comparing. So it just shows her journalistic skills, you know, is not there. It's clear, it's clear the show that she's just there for the ratings and she just kind of just there to just talk about her personal experience. So anybody else wanted to say anything before we go on? Did she get the job because she was qualified? Or did she get the job because of who she is? She definitely got the job because of, because of who she is. Because as you, as you stated when she left, um, she said that her father, John McCain, pretty much put in a word for her to get the job in the first place. Saying that you know, Whoopi Goldberg will 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 was it raise her or mm-hmm. <laughs> train her up to be tough? So that was really her purpose of being on the show, so she can be trained by Whoopi Goldberg on how to be t- tough. So when she has her child, um, she'll be prepared. Which you know that's that's a ludicrous answer to be on a talk show that's supposed to be the number one political talk show of America. Um, but I digress. I would just say that, you know, to talk about how the show contributes to the hyper partisanship in the country, you know, I think I recall, recall maybe a decade or so ago, Jon Stewart was able to, um, not alone, but get uh, this format or this show on CNN called Crossfire um, done away with. Um, it was super hyper partisan. Um, you know, Republican versus Democrat. And there was, you know, John Stewart, I think, went on there and it kind of end, ended the show. Um, so I think there's hope that to get away from, again, what I also think does a disservice to the country, this kind of hyperpartisan um, discourse. But nonetheless, you know, at the same time, you know, a TV show is after ratings, you know, and it's part of show business. So, um, we'll have to see where it goes. I mean, the country, unfortunately, right now, as in general, is really divided. Um, and so I, I, you know, I, I struggle with thinking about how we go about healing that divide. It's certainly going to be a, a long process, a slow process, but um, hopefully, you know, we can begin that uh, journey. 
let entertainers entertain. And don't they all make money from sponsorships? So aren't a lot of their opinions based off of somewhere other than what's based in facts? So so we will segue into our topic um, for today, which is toxic masculinity, um, which is why I brought up the whole um, Megan McCain interview. Because again, for it to be, it's the number one show, and look what kind of show it is. It's a show about all women. Um, we typically don't see shows um, about males on syndicated television, um, and I think a lot of that could be due to you know toxic masculinity as well. It's like, well, why would they have a male talk show on national syndicated television? Why wouldn't they? Oh, that's called ESPN. Uh, oh yeah, I guess not. But can we get a, a definition of what to- toxic masculinity is before we even dive in? Yes, um, I want to. I know Jamil. He he talks about on a lot of his um, show. His shows a lot about toxic masculinity. So if you want to give your brief description on um, toxic masculinity, uh, Jamil, I think toxic masculinity, as understood by the common person, would be a. Um, I think a lot of times they think male when they think about masculinity, like just right off rip. They think about a guy that um, that uses aggression uh, in order to cope with or deal with the way that he feels, even though it may not be something necessarily calls for anger, but anger as a response or aggression as a response to um, a particular phenomenon or something in life. So, um, for example, I think the most popular example is uh, this notion of men not crying, toughen up, be a man. Um, and so that kind of uh, trickled down to a reduction in the perception of people understanding that um, young men are not expressing themselves in a healthy manner. And so um, it reminds me of when it's being described, it reminds me of when little babies, when they're trying to communicate or get a point across or something like that, um, they they get frustrated, get angry, they cry, and things like that. So, I think that's the view of um, the common person when they talk about toxic masculinity. Although I think that um, it's similar similar to what people think. Um, there are limits to femininity or to, or masculinity, but I don't think that um. I don't think it's doing us any justice because I find a lot of um, some of my students um, that, that are familiar with these topics, they're afraid to be masculine at all. And that's um, that's going from one extreme to the other instead of learning that balancing factor of what is necessary in what situation. Can, can I read the definition that's on, uh, I think this is dictionary.com. A set of attitudes and ways of behaving stereotypically associated with or expected of men regarded as having a negative impact on men and on society as a whole. And in quotes, it says the destructive messages associated with toxic masculinity can lead to men feeling entitled to engage in violence against women. Uh Right. I just wanted to read I, that. I think uh, uh, from a um, Jamel said a psychological perspective, the way that I think it, that's certainly true, the way that guys are able to express themselves has gotten better 
over the last, you know, however many years, you know, I think we're, we're cultivating that, allowing guys to be more expressive. But I think what DJ, the, the very end of the quote that DJ just read, I think is really where we hit the nail on the head in terms of being toxic masculinity. And that has to do with violence against women in terms of domestic violence, physical violence, sexual violence, promoting rape culture, um, all sexism. Um, that I think is uh, a huge component to toxic masculinity. And I think we see, um, we've seen over the last two, three years with the fall of Harvey Weinstein, or, uh, you know, in the, the rape, I don't want to call it the rape culture, but the abusive culture in Hollywood and other forms of media that's kind of come out, um, into the open more. Um, that's part of the process process of extracting that venom, that toxic venom, um, out of society. Um, that um, you know, guys have been allowed to get away with with these things, and the Me Too movement, um, I think, has been a, a huge um, uh, achievement in terms of exposing some of these these you know darker corners of society that you know we haven't really wanted to look at before. When I had toxic masculinity, I'm glad you, you, you brought this out. I think that the initial focus was um, men who are more than likely suffering from some sort of trauma acting out in a way that is harmful to others, more specifically women. I think that the it's spread in a way that's targeting masculine men as a whole. Like what you were saying about your students, how some of them are afraid to just express themselves. I think that the term toxic masculinity is overshadowing a toxic culture. I think that there are sick people who do need to go get help and heal and learn better ways to express themselves. It's not okay to abuse anyone. I think the culture that we're in is overall damaging to each other. And when you pinpoint it just on one segment of the culture, like um, just men, for instance, it does uh, make it harder for people to... understand where the problem is. I think that we have to like equally shine the light on where the problem is coming from. And then also not overlook um, the root causes and the possibility that this toxic culture creates toxic men and toxic women as well. And as a whole, we need to heal. Because when we start to get into um, some of these traits outside of the, the, the physical abuse that is from men to women, then we discredit the overall nature of or positive nature or, or positive tendencies that are in a masculine man. So I think that we have to be very careful when, it, when we're portraying what this toxic 
masculinity is and that it isn't just cancel culture on men in general because a lot of people when they hear it they think it's an attack on on men to add to feminist culture so i think that's something that we should definitely look to dispel and make sure that the focus is on the things that are more damaging to us as a culture so, Jason, what do you think? I'll let you go, Jamil, next. Uh, I want Jason to go to give him a chance if he wanted to speak on this. What is your take on toxic masculinity? I agree with everything that's been been said. Uh, I will say that I try to do my, my best in, in life to uh, counteract that culture as best as I can. I mean, I remember going to the bank a couple months ago uh, make to make a deposit, and uh, there was a guy who was catcalling a woman who was walking in front of me, and I turned around and told him, "You don't need to be doing that." Um, and uh, he said, "What?" And I said, "Man, it, that you just leave her alone, man." And then he pulled a gun out on me, and so uh, you know, I, I hate that that even in places where I try to uh, to be uh, to try to counteract that the culture. Uh, you know, things can, can escalate to a point where um, it, it discourages, it can be discouraging uh, to, to try to say something and speak up. But it's something I try to be delivered about. It's something I try to be uh, vocal about. And it's, it's unfortunate that it's so pervasive. But I think it's just all of us being vigilant and checking people when they need to be checked. Uh, I'm not saying that my experience is is going to happen. If next time that happens, that's, I don't think I'm going to get a gun pulled out on me. But uh, unfortunately, um, I recognize folks may not feel the same way I feel on that issue. So I'm just going to keep doing what I can, but, and I hope other people can, and, you know, over time, uh, our spaces are more welcoming for women or more are welcoming, uh, to people who, uh, uh, honestly need to, to have a safe space. And I just want to make sure I can play a positive role in that. Thank you, Neil. I'm glad, I'm glad Jason brought an example. Um, I was gonna share an example as well. Oftentimes I'm in the gym, I'm just working out and you know, everybody's in there doing their thing. One time I was in, a, there's like a studio kind of area in the gym where people can, you know, stretch or um, do ballet or dance, whatever they do. Um, I was in there, there's a young lady in there as well. So as I was leaving, I saw a guy recording a young lady and she was, uh, she was beautiful and she had like a, she had a nice body and everything. Um, but I was always taught, you know, you be respectful. You don't stare down and do all that extra stuff. So as I was walking out, I saw him recording her as she was in the mirror dancing and things like that. And I approached him. I said, are you recording her? And he started panicking and things like that. Uh, he was like, no, I'm not recording. I'm not, I'm just, uh, I'm on Snapchat. And it kind of shocked him a little bit. Cause I'm just like, First of all, if you want to talk to her, go talk to her. But you don't this that creepy mess. We that we have to check that. Like Jason said, we you have to check that behavior. And that, that's just weird. And I'm so glad I have sisters that offer me perspective on things like that. They told me that um a lot of women are pushing to have their own gyms, their own facilities because they have to deal with things like that from creepy men. And I'll be honest, I wouldn't be angry with them. Um that sort of behavior we don't support and we're not with that so i totally understand that and going back to the point in which you know people you gotta when it comes to self-expression you have to be able to have enough um understanding of the way that you feel 
in order to communicate those things. Instead, they come off as weird or they come off as toxic or just unwanted behavior, period. Thank you. Can we just name it something else? Because it sounds like a handful of creepy, deranged, um, abused people are acting in ways that aren't socially acceptable, like rejects of the culture or the ones who slip through the cracks of jail and rehabilitation are out being creepy and on the prowl making the female population uncomfortable. And if we could sum up what percentage of people that is, let's take a poll. Who thinks that's 5% of all men, 10% of all men, half of all men, are men just pigs? Because that's the narrative, that men in their natural state, when they see women, have this uncontrollable nature to just sexualize them in ways that aren't welcome. That's because it's true. It happens, you know? Um, I'm not saying it's true for men as a whole, but I grew up on the south side of Chicago in the hood, um, cat calling, calling women out their name, putting your hands on them. That's seen and that's, and when other younger people see that, they think it's normal. So in those small, you can consider them bubbles of society, those bubbles, it's normal to, and it has to be checked because it's important. If somebody put their hands on my sister, that won't be a good situation for anybody, for me or them. I'm just, I'm gonna just say that like that. And like, we, I, it's important that we have to recognize that. That's the only way it can be checked, called out. Um, but to generalize it, I think that would be an error and say, oh, all men or most men, um, but we have to take into account the narratives, like what's being done, what what type of experience are people having? Take those things into account. Some of them are lies, but you got to acknowledge the ones that aren't lies. You know. I think the um, the media. Um, well, we may have gotten better, but images in the media, the news media, television, movies, all contain these objectifying relationships to, that men have with women. They perpetuate that objectification that kind of sexism. So that's one place to start. But also, you know, um, uh, Jamal talking about growing up in the hood, you know, who did you learn those behaviors from? Who taught you that it was okay to be like that? Or who taught you that that's what a man does? You know, I think we need to rethink uh, what it means to be a man, right? What does that, what does that mean? What, what is that goes into that word that that's that image that that notion of uh, uh you know um masculinity is not bad in and of itself it's the way it gets perverted um that causes these kinds of illnesses in society like sexism and discrimination and so going back to um uncovering the true essence of man if you want to put it that way i think would be um one place to start but isn't America's slogan sex sales? So are we not living out the end product of an over-sexually charged culture? Not to say that this, you know, is acceptable, but are we promoting or encouraging a sickness and then now that we're seeing the symptoms, we're all going in a frenzy? 
But, um, and I, I get it, women feel, you know, dressed and things like that. But just piggybacking on what you were saying as far as, like, how the media portrays um, sex and sells it and everything's, well, based in sex. I guess that's what we're learning, where we're learning it from through the imagery and the music and the commercials, the, the TV shows. Or just turn on Fox News <laughs> and, look, no, I'm, and look at the female anchors on Fox News and compare, do a comparison to other news networks. Or what do you notice is different? <laughs> this is the funny part to me. Uh, I don't want to sound... Um, like what you're saying with these news anchors, it seems as though they're willing to hire them if they can sexually charge them. Like, hey, we may have a majority male audience, and we do want to also make up for our lack of female diversity. But they must look this way to keep these people further entertained. Right. Mm-hmm. So... Because we're going to sell you some sex, man. <laughs> and it could possibly, a lot of that could happen with the lack of um, black fathers being in the home. Because I, I know you stated that, you know, who's being taught. If their fathers, if you don't have fathers in the home, who who are teaching, or who is teaching these children? More likely it's probably the mother's brother or, you know, somebody, the neighborhood, you know, neighborhood leader. Again... <laughs> when we were communities, we had families, and I feel like a lot of these thirsty men wouldn't be thirsty if they were aiming for family structure. But since we have this culture of just no desire to find a quality mate or we're looking at people based off of <laughs> the content of their dress code, this is perpetuating the the same type of toxic situations that we're seeing. If men were looking to, or if people were looking, or if the black community were looking to go back to when things were in a better status, post-1960-ish area era, then would that not alleviate a lot of this catcalling um Abuse because you would care for your significant other. I don't know if it's domestic abuse or if it's just random acts of violence on women. But again, that the foundation of family structure and care for each other builds on top of neighborhood and community. And I'm going to my last uh, topic on this discussion. Um, so I happened to watch the Red Table Talk. It's a pretty good show um, by Jada Pickett Smith. Um, in one episode, she had um, she brought Common, um, rap artist, hip hop artist, on the show. Um, he talks about you know how he how he grew up, you know, not a father in the home, and also um, he admitted that he was sexually abused by um, another male figure um, of a family family member, not family member, but a friend of a family, uh, which was a male and. Um, the fact that he he stated in the interview that he didn't feel himself was he was a victim. Um, he didn't consider himself a victim, um, even though in fact he was a victim. Um, do you guys think that could be a, a part of toxic masculinity, kind of hiding the fact that you know he was sexually abused and 
he kind of wanted to deny it like it didn't happen. Or um, it's almost like you kind of like being afraid to cry, like being vulnerable. He looked at he looked at it as a weakness to bring it up, or why do he feel he's not a victim? Yeah, I mean, psychologically, I think um, there's a hesitance with men more so, and I I can't really speak to to African American men, but men in general to talk about um, you know early childhood trauma or early childhood sexual abuse. It's much more difficult. Um, there's more shame, I think, sometimes that goes along with it. Um, and, you know, we have to ask ourselves, why is that the case? Um, you know, why is it harder for guys to talk about these things um, than it is for women? And, you know, I think part of that is that, you know, there's a notion that this isn't supposed to happen to, to, to men. I should, you know, I should have stood up for myself. I should have been strong enough. Um, so we have to, like, uh, Jamal said earlier, you know, allow Jamil. Jamil, I'm sorry. Jamil said earlier, we have to allow guys and men to, um, you know, tap into, um, their emotions and to be able to say that it's okay to, to express these things, to, to grieve that kind of trauma, to be sad, to express the whole range of human emotions uh, that everybody has and not just gravitate towards anger, towards aggression. Uh, so, um, yeah, I think to, to circle back to your point, Paul, I think there's a sense that that story, you know, um, is kind of a, a recycling of that form of toxic masculinity. I mean, what's the statistic for uh, people who witness domestic violence in their home growing up and becoming the same thing that they witnessed? So I'm pretty sure that that, that adds to it. Um, anything bottled up is bound to reach its boiling point. So definitely helping people who are... I think the term victim is sometimes looked at as like a a point of weakness. So to to claim that yes, I was a victim is probably hard for a lot of people to do and which is probably the starting point for them to get the proper help that they need. But um definitely I think that in the in the black community we have to like normalize uh calling out family members or people close to family members who are doing inappropriate things to young children. Um, what I've noticed is that the fear of the consequence for telling the truth of what happened doesn't sit well with a lot of black families. So instead they sweep these sort of things under the rug and cause further monsters down the road. And um, that's something that we definitely need to change because that, that adds to, to the toxic situation um, that's, that's plaguing our community. I think one of the ways that we can sort of ameliorate a toxic behavior uh, in a sexual um, social sense in a, um, or just our, our, our interactions with one another. Uh, one thing I found that helped myself, my brothers and my other friends that 
engage is uh, martial arts. And as basic as it may seem, martial arts or some sort of a competitive sport, a quality competitive sport will teach discipline. It teaches control. It teaches um, problem solving, critical thinking, camaraderie, teamwork. Um, and those are all social skills. You work learning to work with your team. You can transfer that work in the classroom together or work with your neighbor and things like that. Uh, the discipline that that self-control is that's a that's a major factor every time any of, of the younger children got out of line sensei would get them in line and they would be checked by the other senseis or, or the other elders and teach them this is the way you respond to this sort of um in this this situation you don't respond you don't pout you don't throw a fit you respond in in this manner or you know you take some deep breaths you walk it off or talk it out but um what we see is a lack of self-control. We see um, hyper emotionalization of our young men. So um, one, we already don't, they already don't know how to express what they feel. And so they use the channel of anger to um, kind of what they think is, is expressing the way that they feel or to let that emotion out. So I think that um, self-control will save not only those young men from being, or just those people being in, in unfavorable situations or circumstances, but it'll also save their lives just by being able to control yourself and the way that you respond to different stimuli. Thank you. Thank you, Coach. Um, Coach Jason. Did you want to go, Jason, or respond to toxic masculinity? Masculinity, I'm sorry. I didn't have anything to add. No, no. I guess before we head off, I want to go a little bit into politics a little bit. I know you're currently running for a, a council member. Um, and I want to know, what is your take on currently what's going on with the Atlanta elections? I know I hear a lot of talk about these council member seats. I know you said it was 20 people running, and then you have these mayor mayoral races um, where, you know, I'm sure you heard about um, Mayor Kasim Reeves um, rerunning for election, and then you have all these other people running for um election as well um but you know there's a lot of corruptions that has been going on like i know mayor kasim reed um a lot of his cabinet members has been charged and arrested for a lot of corruption during his um his mayoral um ten, uh i guess tenure or matriculation so to speak so i want to know what is, what is your take on these on these mayoral races or even these council member races like as far as do you do you have faith that atlanta would would do for the people like they claim to be? Yeah, uh, so just guess a quick caveat. My, my dogs are, so in, over my part of town, we're still celebrating the 4th of July, so they're still shooting off fireworks. My, my dogs don't appreciate them too much. So if you hear bark in the background, I'm just apologies in advance. Um, but uh, I will say, just to clarify, I mean, I was talking about the 20 or so folks who are running. I meant, I meant the, that's the number of offices. We currently have about, uh, something close to 75 or 80 candidates for office across those 20 offices. And there's a lot of people running for mayor. Uh, there are a lot of people running for city council. In fact, in my race for city council, I am one of six candidates challenging a 28 year incumbent. Uh, and so uh, there's uh, a lot of energy and not, not uh, excitement about the possibility for change and the possibility that the city of Atlanta can, can do more for our working families. I think that's why you have so many people running for so many of these offices. 
Uh, I think the fact that uh, Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms decided not to run for reelection kind of threw a grenade in the, the whole uh, political order. Uh, folks were expecting this to be a pretty sleepy election cycle. Uh, typically, mayors uh, don't have much of an issue getting reelected. Historically, that's been the case. And uh, once she decided she was not running for a reelection, then you had at least one, two, three members of city council who decided they were running for mayor. And so their seats became open. And then now um, it's, it's, it just, it, you know, that cascading effect, effect uh, down ballot. So it's an exciting time to be in Atlanta if you're into local politics. There's also a scary time. There, I think that um, uh, there's been a history of uh, incumbents getting reelected year over year over year. And you have, uh, you've had a lot of these folks who have not done uh, any, any service to people in these communities, especially people living on the margins. And there, a lot of them are still running for reelection. So you're gonna have a largely new city council because you have five open seats right now. But um, uh, sorry about the dolls once again. <laughs> Uh, but uh, so there's just a lot of uncertainty tied to that as well. So for me, I mean, I'm focused on my race and my election and talking to my voters, but I recognize for folks across the city, there's just a lot of uncertainty because of the fact that you have um, a lot of uh, just new faces. I will say you have a very uh, uh, big and important familiar face in mayor, former mayor Cassine Reed, who's running for election again. Uh, the only other time we've had a former mayor, a former term limited mayor run for election has been with Maynard Jackson when he ran back in 1991 um, uh, or 1989. Um, and uh, he, was a, he was Atlanta's first black mayor. Uh, and, and there was a lot of, he maintained a lot of support when he decided to run for re-election in, in, in the late 80s, early 90s. Uh, but Kasim Reed is a little bit of a different animal. Um, he did have a lot of controversy in his first administration and second administrations. So, um, you know, it remains to be seen uh, whether he will get out from underneath that and, and be successful in November. Uh, and, you know, a lot of these races, uh, if y'all don't know, especially if you're not in Georgia, um, uh, Georgia requires that you have to have more than 50% of the vote to win the race, which means that many of these races will likely go into a runoff which creates a whole different set of dynamics and the fact that this is the first major election cycle uh, post-pandemic, or I know we're still in the middle of the pandemic, but uh, you won't have the same kind of uh, uh, absentee voting that you had in the presidential race last year. So a lot of folks who are watching the election cycle, uh, and certainly those candidates, are really curious to see how that impacts early voting, how that impacts uh, how people go to the polls, not to mention this Georgia election law that's going to uh, ha have been taken in, in effect. And so this, this is all to say that there's a lot of uncertainty. Uh, but at the end of the day, I mean, I wouldn't be running for office if I wasn't an optimist. So uh, you know, there's a, a certain level of hopefulness uh, with this election cycle as well. But I think it is incumbent of the activists and the organizers and the folks who are trying to make good policy happen at City Hall to stay on these candidates, stay on uh, these folks who are running for re-election or running for a new election, to make sure that uh, they know what the issues are, that they're educated on those issues, and that they're going to fight for the people who need help the most. Because too often, people run for office and don't run for the right reasons. And uh, they need to you know, be re reminded that voters uh, have a voice, 
uh, and they're going to make their voices heard. Thank you. Thank you, Jason. I appreciate that, um, that wealth of information. Now we know moving forward, um, what we need to do, um, to get out the vote. So we're going to conclude on this episode. Um, thank you um, for all you that got on. Um, we're going to leave some last remarks. Jack will let you go first, and then we'll go um, in the, in the uh, coordinates of the um, people that spoke. Yeah, thank you so much to um, Jamal and to Jason for sharing both of your perspectives. Um, I think you know our conversation this evening, I think, was really enlightening in terms of um, you know, looking at uh, issues like uh, toxic uh, masculinity um, in relation to the media. Um, over and above that, I think the more important discussion has to do with the um, uh, resurgence of white supremacy, or maybe not even resurgence, but just the presence of white supremacy that still lingers in society today. And I think uh, with you all today, thinking about, talking about ways we can dismantle that, how we can rework that, how we can shift the discourse, the conversation, the narrative, I think um, uh, goes a long way, hopefully, towards um, furthering that end. So I appreciate you two taking the time to be with us tonight. Yeah, really nice speaking with you, gentlemen. Um, I appreciate your perspectives and uh, hope that we can have you back sometime. I would like to thank Dr. Renaissance for the invite. Um, very good friend of Matt, met him in, uh, in Atlanta when I was at Morehouse College. Uh, thank you to Dr. Jake, DJ, and Mr. Dozier. Um, I really enjoyed learning about um, different perspectives as well, especially uh, when it comes to either hot topics or um, systemic racism or uh, masculinity. I'm pretty sure a lot of these things, uh, many people can resonate and um, relate to. So um, I'm really grateful for the invite and the time speaking with all of you. Thank you. I want to echo that. Thank you so much to all of y'all. Thank you so much to Jamil. I just really appreciate it being with you all this evening. Uh, and uh, yeah, I just look forward to uh, just, just, you know, the next chapter in all this. I just really appreciate y'all's voice and, 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 and just what y'all been able to do. Thank you, everyone. Again, this concludes our episode of Point of View Uncensored. Again, I am Dr. Renaissance. I'm Dr. Jake. I'm DJ DeGree. All right, have a blessed rest of your evening. Peace out. Mm-hmm.